Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording from our 2021 Passover Prep Learning Series. So here we are, Shira Shirim, session four. We're going to look today at some contemporary reflections on Shira Shirim. We've looked at ancient Near Eastern Pshat, and we've looked at Midrash, and we've looked at medieval allegorical interpretations, which also come from based on Midrash. And now today we're going to look at um, modern things, although we're going to start with Midrash. And we're going to do chapters seven and eight. Rabbi Schatz, whenever you're ready to get her up on the screen there. Okay, so um, you can scroll all the way through page one. I just copied what I had last time about the things, the tension, the balance, the city, the country, the king's court, the common people, the shepherds, the questions, all that stuff. It's in your uh, handout for last time. I just copied it over for this time, whatever. And key terms to know and follow. Um, that's also copied over. Okay, so we can jump right in with chapter seven. Okay, shuvi shuvi hashulamit. Complicated phrase. Uh, we're we're starting with JPS. Turn back, turn back, O maid of shulam, which suggests that shulamit is a female epithet meaning you're from a place called shulam. Turn back. Ooh, the weird just things happened. Did uh, that happen for other people in the screen share? Some Hebrew words jumped over to the English. Rebecca, I think she just Rebecca. needs to refresh the screen. Refresh the screen? Can you refresh? The sure. Screen? I didn't do anything, but sure. There we go. It's back. It's, not, it's back. Okay. Turn back, turn back, that we may gaze upon you. Okay. Why will you gaze at the Shulamite in the Machanayim dance? So this does not appear to be said by the man or the woman. It's unclear. Now it appears we're talking about the woman is the Shulamit. Now, scholars don't, you know, traditional scholars, unclear what that means. Um, you know, the closest link is Yerushalayim is also called Ir Shalem. So does this mean Jerusalem girl, right? Female Jerusalemite. Is it related to Shlomo, King Solomon? Does this mean, you know, the, the female of Solomon? Um there are other places in the Bible where there's a place called Shunem. And if you're from Shunem, you're a Shunamit. There's actually a story in the Book of Kings about a Shunamit. So there's some scholars who say it really should be Shunamit. So it's not entirely clear. And of course, Shalem also means whole, W-H-O-L-E, wholeness, integrity. So is it an epithet that has something to do with that? Questions? Shuvi, Shuvi. Technically, it means... Come back, come back, turn back, turn back. I looked at one of my English translations uh, yesterday that translates it as encore, encore, right? Come again, come again. So there's a dance, all right? Or she's walking by and they're saying, hey, turn around, turn around. So we can look at you. Uh, are these Are these the... The cat calling construction workers. Okay. Um, are they uh, the king's companions? Are they the maidens of Jerusalem? We have no, no idea who is saying this. So someone is saying, hey, hey, turn, turn around. We want to come back here. We want to get a look at you. And then maybe she says, maybe the second half of the verse should in blue. Uh, sorry, in red, right? 
maybe, she says, why would you be staring at the Shulamit as if she were a Mahanaim dancer, which we have no idea what that means, a camp dancer. So maybe this means, oh, don't treat her like some dancer that you're going to stare at. Maybe not. So it's an interesting, mysterious sentence. That's not exactly part of what makes it mysterious is it doesn't flow in an obviously connected way with anything else that we've read in Shirashirin. Okay. And then the man is saying, how lovely are your feet in sandals, O daughter of nobles. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master's hand. Your navel is, your navel is like a round goblet. Let mixed why not be lacking? That's in the goblet. Your belly like a heap of wheat hedged about with lilies. Your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like a, by the way, uh, before he said there are, a previous description, he started at the top and worked his way down. Now he's starting at the bottom and working his way up. He started with the sandals, the legs, the belly, right, breasts. Then your neck is like a tower of ivory, your eyes like pools in Cheshbon by the gate of Batrabim, your nose like the Lebanon tower that faces toward Damascus. Again, we went from bottom to top here. So these are not random physical descriptions. There is a a, direction, a directionality to the gaze. The head upon you is like crimson wool. The locks of your head are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. The last time we had purple was early on when we were talking about King Solomon's litter chair or something like that, or his pavilion, which was lined with purple. Again, purple being the royal color. So he concludes... You are really beautiful, right? After doing all these body parts. How fair are you? How beautiful. Maya fit umana amt. Oh, love with all its rapture. Ahava batanugim, which maybe it means, oh, love with all its rapture. Your stately form is like the palm. Your breasts are like clusters, right? He can't get off the breasts, that guy. I say, let me climb the palm. Let me take hold of its branches. Let your breasts be like clusters of grapes, your breath like the fragrance of apples or apricots, as we said before, and your mouth like choicest wine. So he's described her, and then he said, and I want to climb the tree and eat the fruit and drink the wine. This is what he desires. These are his intentions. In the middle of a verse we shift over to the woman's voice. And again, we know this clearly from the Hebrew, means your mouth or your cheek talking to a female. So we know that it's a male talking to a female, or at least we know that it's someone talking to a female. And holech dodi, lemei sharim, holech and dodi are masculine. So now we know that someone is talking to the male. And that's why even though it's in the middle of a verse, we say there's a shift here from the man talking to the woman talking, right? So she says, um, it's unclear to me why that is in parentheses. I have no idea. Um, so this choicest wine, so you said to me, I'm the woman, you said to me, my mouth is like choicest wine. Then the woman says, let it, meaning that wine, 
flow to my beloved as new wine gliding over the lips of sleepers. Some translations for Dovave says it awakens the lips of sleepers. Okay. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. That word for desire is tshukato. It clearly means sexual desire. Okay. And this is a toss-up question. And this is going to link us to our third of four commentaries that we're going to read today, later on. The word tishuka for desire, alai tishukato. Does that ring a, a bell for anyone from anywhere else in the Bible? I'll pause and let people scratch their noggins, and you may unmute and answer if you know the answer. I'll, I'll give you a hint. It does have to do with the woman. I, I'm going to make this really wild guess that it goes all the way back to why a man leaves his parent and cleaves to his wife. You're close, Henry. You're a few verses off. It is bracious. Okay, that was a good, good, good guess. It's a little off. It's actually the part of the desire is part of the woman's punishment that Hashem says to her after eating the fruit of the tree. He says, you will have pain in childbirth, yet you will have lust for your husband. Meaning, it's going to be recorded. I was going to speak colloquially, but it's being recorded, so I I won't. I'll speak politely. Um, You're going to have sex with him. You're going to get pregnant. You're going to have a baby. It's going to be painful having a baby. And then afterwards, eventually, you're going to want it again. Okay? It's part of what God says. It says, a love teshukatech. Right? Yet you're going to have desire for him. Right? So here we have an, it's not a common word in the Bible. We have an interesting mirror image saying, he has desire for me. He wants me. Okay. And um, in terms of people who read the Bible intertextually, taking different texts from different places and putting them together, which is, of course, what the Midrash does, but also what modern literary scholars do, is that random that the word tishuka is used? Or is that intentional? that the word teshuka is used. Now notice there's a samach, there's a pause, the woman. So next, the next poem, um, what, what the what traditional scroll writers thought of was the next poem is still said by the female. So it's the next poem or it's the next thought. Come my beloved guy, let's go out to the field. Let us sleep among the bushes. That is basically what that means. Let us go early to the vineyards. Early means early in the morning. Let us see if the vine has flowered, if its blossoms have opened, if the pomegranates are in bloom. All of these metaphors for spring and also for blossoming love and for perhaps sexual arousal. Okay, let's go out there to the fields. Let's see. So again, the, the, the couples love mirrors what's going on in nature, all right? So let's go see if nature is ready. There I will give my love to you. 
Sham etain et dodai lach. The mandrakes yield their fragrance. At our doors are all choice fruits, both freshly picked and long stored. Have I kept my beloved for you? All of my pleasures, right? All the fruit, dodi, the old ones and the new ones. I've been reserving them for you. Okay. Um, that's the end of chapter seven. Mandrakes. Where else have we seen mandrakes in the Bible? Do, by the way, um, why are the, why mandrakes and why do we care about mandrakes? And the Hebrew word for mandrakes is dudaim. And scholars assume they're called dudaim because it's related to the word dodim, which means loving. And um, would, could someone describe for us? We have two toss-up questions. Number one, what do mandrakes look like? And question two, where have we seen mandrakes in the Bible? I will try number two. I will give a shot at number two because it, it, mandrakes were dealing with uh, uh, the children of, uh, of, of Leah. She talked about one of the names was dealing with mandrakes going on in that story. What was the story? What was the story? What was the story? Do you remember? Um, it's in Genesis. So, uh, so um, Ruvain goes out and he finds mandrakes, which apparently were believed to be an aphrodisiac. By the way, mandrakes are roots that look sort of like people. There's a stem and it's got a couple of limbs off it. Um, and they were believed to be aphrodisiacs. And Ruvain went out and picked mandrakes. And uh, do I have the story backwards? No, I think that's it. Reuven picked mandrakes. And, um, and... You Rachel. don't have the story backwards. He picked the mandrakes, and Rebecca said, give me the mandrakes. And Leah said... Not Rebecca. Not Rebecca. But, but he has to Rachel. sleep with me tonight. Right. So it's about an aphrodisiac. <clears throat> right. So of all the plants, that's why she's, she's saying, all the plants, all the fruits... Let's go see if it's all open. The mandrakes are in bloom. Okay. Um, okay. That's the end of that poem. Now chapter eight. Chapter eight, it gets interesting. It's all interesting, but it gets different. The woman says, ah, if only you could be with me like a brother, as if you had nursed at my mother's breast, then I could kiss you when I met you in the street and no one would despise me. If you were my brother... I could hug you and kiss you publicly, right? And, and this would be an, a socially acceptable thing to do. I would lead you. I would bring you to the house of my mother, of her who taught me. I would let you drink of the spiced wine of my pomegranate juice. Change of thought. His left hand was under my head. His right hand caresses me. Or maybe his left hand is under my head and his right, or maybe his left hand will be under my head, and his right hand will embrace me. Um, I read a couple things that pointed out that it's always the mother's house. The father is absent in Shir Hashirim. Some learns say she's an orphan. That's why there's no father. Okay, we'll see the mother again in a moment. I adjure you, fancy English, I, I, I am demanding that you take an oath. O maidens of Jerusalem, do not wake or rouse love until it please. Um, this is the fourth of the four 
time she says, I swear to me, O daughters of Jerusalem. And we're going to talk about that later. Um, and I said to you in the past, this always puzzled me. What does it mean? Don't rouse love until it pleases. Does that mean don't get involved? Let us go at our own pace. Um, I read a commentary, heard a commentary uh, in my studies that uh, it means don't interrupt us. We're loving here. It's like a sign on the door. It's like in college, you put the, you know, something on the door, right? Do, right. The ahava is the polite word she is using to the outside people, the friends, instead of dodim. With the beloved, they call it dodim. It's lovemaking. Okay. Outwardly, she uses a more polite term, ahava. Don't interrupt our love until we're ready. Um, uh, some people have seen in, you know, in Shirashirim poems that have to do with um, a wedding. It's like yichud. Right, you know, the bride and groom go into the room alone together for seclusion uh, after the chuppah, immediately after the chuppah, they have guards outside the door to prevent people from interrupting them. This is the bride saying, leave us alone until we decide we're ready to come out. So that's another interpretation of it. Okay. Who is she that comes up from the desert leaning upon her beloved? So presumably the woman doesn't say that, right? Because she wouldn't say, who is that? And he wouldn't say that because he wouldn't say leaning upon her beloved. He would say leaning on me. So this is, again, anonymous. We have various anonymouses, uh, you know, unnamed people. Are they daughters of Jerusalem? Are they the watchmen? Are they the brothers? Are they Solomon's warriors? We have these various groups of others in Shirashirim. So others say, who is that coming from the desert? right? Leaning on that man. And then she speaks. Under the apple tree, I roused you, which is a good translation because orarticha in context could either mean I woke you or it could mean I aroused you in the sexual sense, right? So under the tree, which is probably not an apple because there weren't domesticated apples in Israel in ancient times, under the apricot tree, I roused you or aroused you. It was there that your mother conceived you. There, she who bore you conceived you. So here we have a link again to mother, not her mother before she said, I wish I could, you were my brother in my mother's house. Now she's talking about your mother, okay? Um, and this apparently is known as the, uh, I don't know, the apricot tree of loving or something. Because that's where your mother got pregnant, is sort of what she's saying. Let me be with you under that apricot tree in the fields where your mother got pregnant with you. So it's clear here she's well aware that she's connecting sexual activity to procreation, right? Because um, one of the questions that's raised um, about Shirashirim is like, Oh, what about parenting, you know? Are they just running around or do they want to be a family and have children? So here there's awareness, okay? That's where you were conceived. Let's go under the apple tree. And then she says her beautiful little sermon about love. Simeni kachotam alibecha kachotam alzorecha. Set me as a seal on your heart, as a seal on your hand. Seal on your heart means you're somehow 
engraved in my mind, okay? Uh, and to bind like the trillin, bound on your arm means it's very close to you. It's like a tattoo. It's like a bracelet or a bangle or a thing that you wear, okay? So what she's saying she wants, now she's not just saying, I want to give you loving. She's saying something deeper than that, I think, right? She's saying, I want to be engraved into you and tied to you because love is as fierce as death or strong as death, Oz. Passion is as mighty as Sheol, Sheol being a synonym of death. So we have poetic, you probably know, and ancient Israelite poetry, things are said in sort of parallelism, right? Ki aza, you can hear it, by the way, even if you don't understand the Hebrew. Ki aza kamavet ahava, kasha kishol kina. As strong as death is love, as strong as Sheol is passion. Kina here probably means passion, not jealousy and not zealousness. Its darts are darts of fire, a blazing flame, right? Love is like flaming darts, right? Have an image almost of Cupid shooting arrows. So it's flaming, right? Therefore, vast floods cannot quench love, nor rivers drown it. If a man offered all his wealth for love, he would be laughed to scorn. He'd be mocked. Can't buy me love. Right? And this is a famous passage that there are people who have it on their on their wedding invitation or on their around the perimeter of their ketubah. I have it actually engraved on a kiddush cup that my wife got me as our as a, she bought me as my engagement present. It's our our Shabbos, every Shabbos kiddush cup. So this is her statement. She's not she's talking to him, but she's also talking to the world. Okay, now. Who's speaking? Presumably the brothers. Now all of a sudden we have the brothers. We have a little sister whose breasts are not yet formed, meaning the brothers, again, who are the guardians, right? We think we have this little 11-year-old sister. She's not of age yet, or however old, 12. What shall we do for our sister when she is spoken for? Which sort of means something like, how are we going to get her married off? Or what are we going to do when someone wants to marry her? So the brothers, so she, I want you to get the juxtaposition. She is saying, man, I want to be engraved in your heart. She, she knows about love, okay? The brothers think like, oh, we have a little sister. She's not ready yet. What are we going to do when she's ready? If she be a wall, we will build upon it a silver battlement. If she be a door, we will panel it in cedar. A lot of interpretations of this. Does that mean we have to protect her? Does that mean we have to uh, present her beautifully does is it wall means she's been chased if she be a door means she's been unchased because doors open and close so different interpretation so the brothers are worrying about oh what are we going to do when it's time for her to get married off she jumps in i am a wall meaning i am chased my breasts are like towers meaning you think i'm not at the age of maturity yet you are wrong brothers you have not been looking very closely at the outfits that I am wearing lately, she is saying. So I become in his eyes, presumably this is the eyes of the male lover, as one who finds favor, kimotzeit shalom, 
Okay. Normally we'd say motzeit chen, motzeit shalom. She has found peace or favor. Again, shalom is one of the key words that returns, right? We have, she's called the shulamit. We have benot Yerushalayim. We have King Shlomo. Okay, so Shalom is one of the keywords um, that recurs in the scroll. Then there's a pay, which is also a pause. So we have another little story, which apparently the woman is saying. Solomon had a vineyard in Baal Hamon. Remember, we've talked about, is it Solomon? Is the shepherd? Is it a love triangle? Right, so the woman says, Solomon has this vineyard. He had to post guards in the vineyard. A man would give for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver, which means the vineyard is worth a thousand pieces of silver, or it gives a thousand pieces of silver of grapes per year, which I assume means it is a big, big vineyard, which you would expect because it belongs to the king. I have my very own vineyard. So this is the resolution perhaps of the Solomon shepherd thing. King Solomon, you got a big vineyard. By the way, how many how many wives did King Solomon have, according to the Book of Kings? 1,000, okay? He's, and he's got this big vineyard worth 1,000 pieces of silver. I have my own vineyard, she says. You may have the 1,000, O Solomon, and the guards of the fruit, 200. Now, this suggests, by the way, that the fee for the guards of the fruit was like 20%. They're basically sharecroppers, okay? Um it's worth a thousand pieces of silver. They get 200. Where have we seen the watchers before in, I believe, chapter one or two, when she said, I'm dark because my brothers have made me guard the vineyards, their vineyards. I didn't get to guard my own vineyard. Right? I didn't get to take care of my own thing. And now it comes back at the end where she is saying, I have my vineyard, which presumably is her lover. Okay, I'm not interested in Solomon's vineyard. It's a big vineyard. It's worth a thousand. I don't really care. You watchers, other people can go watch that vineyard. I have my own vineyard. Okay, Solomon, King Solomon, to heck with you. Oh, you who linger in the garden, Hayoshevet Baganim. By the way, many of these are Israeli songs, you know, in Piyutim. Oh, you female who linger in the garden, a lover is listening which is not exactly a literal translation of chaverim makshivim, right? It really means friends are listening, maybe lovers are listening, but it's plural. Makshivim hashmi'ini. Some people think that the trope, for those who are interested in trope, uh, Rick, that the trope here is chaverim makshivim lekolech hashmi'ini. Lovers are listening to your voice. Let me hear you. This translates it as if the trope is different. A lover is listening. Pause. I want to hear your voice. And here's her voice. The last line of the Song of Songs. Hurry, my beloved. Or brach also means run away, my beloved. Swift as a gazelle or a young stag to the hills of spices. It's interesting. She's saying hurry or run. She's not saying exactly literally run to me or run away from me or let's run together. Baby, we were born to run. She's not saying that either. Okay. Um, And that's the ending. So we end without, you know, we are under the apricot tree or we're out in the fields or that's not how we end. 
which is what a lot of the commentators are going to comment. Okay, pause. It's great. We read all of Shira Shirin. Let's go on, Rabbi Shots. Down, down, down. Okay. I have four things for you. I'm going to try to race through them. One is the three oaths. Okay, this is famous and important. And I didn't know about it a week ago. And then it's one of these things I learned like, oh, this is famous and important. And how come I never knew that? Someone said to me, I'm surprised that you didn't know that. I said, I just didn't know it. Okay, so if you remember, um, she causes the daughters of Jerusalem to swear four times. Three out of the four times, she says, do not arouse love until it's ready. The third time, which we read last week, it's, I promise me that when you see my lover, you'll tell him that I love him, right? So that's the one that doesn't belong. The other three is, hey, you maidens of Jerusalem, do not interrupt, do not rouse love. Okay, here's the Gemara. Um, I'm going down to Rabiosi says, the Gemara explains that verse is necessary for that which taught, which is by Rabbi Yosef, son of Rabbi Hanina, who said, why are these three oaths needed? These three oaths mean th- three things. One, the Jews should not ascend to Eretz Yisrael as a wall. Could you scroll back up a little bit, please, Rabbi Schatz? Okay, but, but, but little by little. Another oath that the Holy One, blessed be, adjured the Jews that they should not rebel against the rule of the nations of the world. Go down. And the last one is that the Holy One, blessed be, he, they should not. Nations of the world should not subjugate the Jews excessively. Okay, so this is a Talmudic passage which says, Hashem, Shlomo HaMelech, which is really, this book was written by Shlomo, which really means God, and God is imposing on the world three oaths. Jews, don't attack the Gentiles and rebel. Number two, uh, sorry, don't fight. Okay, I'm going to talk about that in a moment. Number two, Jews don't rebel against the Gentiles. Number three, Gentiles don't oppress the Jews too much. This is a statement about the condition of the exile, that the Jewish people is in a state of neither here nor there, suspended animation. We're under the control of the Gentiles who dominate us, who sometimes persecute us. Gentiles don't persecute them too much. Jews don't rebel. Okay, Rabbi Schatz, don't move anything. Don't move anything. Sorry. In the second line, first and second line, Shelo Ya'alu Bachoma. That's the first of the three oaths. There are two versions of this in the manuscripts. Bachoma, thank you for highlighting, or Kachoma. Bet and Kaf look very similar. They are just different by a little nubby nub. Shelo Ya'alu Bachoma literally means the Jews should not climb the wall or mount the wall. In English, we would say mount the ramparts, except not usually mount the ramparts means defensively. This means the Jews should not attack the wall offensively, meaning the Jews should not fight. The Jews should not pick up weapons. Our translation in English is reading that it's the version of Kachoma. The Jews should not la'alot, should not make aliyah like a wall, which the people, the, the commentators, who read it as Kahoma says they may come to Israel little by little, but they may not come like a wall, meaning they can't come to Israel all at once. Okay. This is famous throughout Jewish halachic history as the Midrash of the three oaths, the Shalosh Shivuot. For those who know some Hebrew, 
Don't get confused with the three weeks between Tisha B'Av, uh, uh, between 17th of Thomas and Tisha B'Av. That is called the Shlosha Shavuot. This is the Shalosh Shivuot, okay? From Shvuah rather than Shavuah. So it's not the three weeks, it's the three oaths. Let's scroll down. So this is seen throughout Jewish halachic history. For hundreds of years, Jewish legal scholars debated the meaning of this passage or doctrine called the three oaths. It seems to be interpreted by the Talmud to mean that Jews should remain in exile, subjugated by the Gentiles, passively wait for God to send the Messiah and not do anything to hasten the end other than perform mitzvot. Jews, early on in the common era, had a very bitter taste of what it means to say the Messiah has arrived. One taste was Bar Kokhba, right? And the Bar Kokhba rebellion in the 130s was devastating for Jewish life, okay? Another was, there was a Jew who said he was the Messiah, and then his followers stopped keeping halakha and became a very large dominant group that persecuted, persecuted the Jews a lot. They were called Christians. So throughout ages thereafter, there were at various times people who said they're the Messiah and there were people who were suspicious of them, okay? And sometimes the people said they're the Messiah and they said, and let's all go to Eretz Israel, and then they would turn to their rabbis and say, is it time to go to Eretz Israel? Because we have the doctrine of the Shalosh Shavuot, which was generally interpreted to mean all we do is do mitzvot. We're not supposed to fight. We're not supposed to go on mas to Eretz Yisrael. We're waiting for God to send the Messiah. The Midrash Shalosh Shavuot is basically a command about Jewish passivity, passiveness, right? Um, we're dominated by Christianity. We're dominated by Islam. Don't fight back. Don't rebel. Wait for the Messiah. And there were arguments about this halakhically. Did the proscription apply to individuals or only to a community as a whole? So Ramban, Nachmanides, who actually went to Israel, said it's a mitzvah to make aliyah because you can keep more mitzvot. There are mitzvot that are connected to living in Israel that you can't keep in the diaspora. And this applies, the three oaths applies only to Israel as a group. Individuals certainly should go move to Israel, but the exile as a whole should not move to Israel until the Messiah comes. Did it make a difference if Jews made Aliyah with the consent of Gentile rulers or not? So if the Gentile rulers of the land consent, does that mean we're rebelling or is it okay? What about if Jews made Aliyah for religious, spiritual reasons and not political ones? All these questions were discussed in the Halakha. Now I have a whole bunch of sources. I'm going to do the first one and the last one. Rambam, right? Um, in Yemen, uh, there was a persecution of Jews in Yemen, and there was a someone who said he might be the Messiah, and the Jews of Yemen sent Rambam a question saying, is it time? Should we leave Yemen and all go to Eretz Israel? And Rambam said, Solomon, of blessed memory, inspired by the Holy Spirit, foresaw that the prolonged duration of the exile would incite some of our people to seek to terminate it before the appointed time, and as a consequence, they would perish or meet with disaster. Therefore, he admonished them and adjured them in metaphorical language to desist. As we read, I adjure you, O maidens of Jerusalem from Cherashrim. Now, brethren and friends, abide by the oath and stir not up love until it pleases. And may God, who created the world with the attribute of mercy, grant us to behold the ingathering of the exiles 
to the portion of his inheritance. So Rambam is saying to the Jews of Yemen, stay put, do not push the end. Hashem determines when the end will come. Hashem sends the Mashiach. Do not go as a community up to Eretz Yisrael. I'm not going to read the other sources. Let us scroll down. You can read them at home. Rabbeinu Bafia, the Maharal, the Shela. Wait, wait, we'll go back, go back, go back, go back, go back a little. Right, uh, right there. No, down. I'm sorry. I'm driving you nuts. Go down. Satmar Rebbe. Okay. In the 1800s and 1900s. Is that right? Yes. This is the issue in European orthodoxy with the rise of Zionism. Is Zionism a violation of the three oaths? Okay. And there were people who said, we can go to Israel just as a community and not rebel against the Ottomans. Um, so for those who, who know the history, the way it lines up, the Aguda, Aguda Israel, they were the sort of Haredim who were Zionists, sort of Zionists. And the people who we end up calling Haredim today, we know that they're Haredi anti-Zionists, of whom the arch one was is the Satmer, right? Rabbi Yol Teilbaum said in 1959, because of our sinfulness, we have suffered greatly. But in our generation, one need not look far for the sin responsible for our calamity. The Satmar Rebbe is talking about the Shoah, and he says the reason for the Holocaust was that it was a punishment for secular Zionism. Okay? And he says, whenever disasters befell the Jewish people in the past, destruction of the first temple, they looked for reason. It was because of idolatry. Destruction of the second temple, they looked for reason. It was because of sinat chinam, baseless hatred, which means internal divisions among the Jewish people. And for the Shoah, the reason is secular Zionism. Okay? The heretics, which means secular Zionists, have made all kinds of effort to violate these oaths. He's talking about the three oaths. To go up by force and seize sovereignty and freedom by themselves before the appointed time. To force the end prematurely is worse than all other transgressions, even the most serious in the Torah. So the basis of Haredi anti-Zionism is the interpretation of the three oaths, the Gemaras, the Midrash, in the Talmud, it's also in Shirashirim Rabbah, that these oaths in Shirashirim basically means do not seek to bring the end before it is time, right? O daughters of Jerusalem, wait till love decides it's time means people wait till God decides to bring the Mashiach, okay? Um, I want to leave that. That is modern. You may not find it edifying or uplifting. Okay, I am going to skip. Let's go. Number two is Yehuda Amichai's poem. Oh, I'll read it. I'll read it, and we're not going to discuss it. Okay, now come back. Okay, the singer uh, Yehuda Amichai has a suite of poems about um, based on the Tanakh, and this is the final one of it's number 32 in the suite of poems. And I'm sorry for the Hebrew, which was a PDF, which I tried to paste in the into Word and weird things happen with formatting. And he talks about the, the metaphor, right? All the metaphors in Shir Hashirim. The singer of the Song of Songs sought his beloved so long and so hard that he lost his mind and went looking for her with a simile map and fell in love with the images he himself had imagined. He went down to Egypt for he had written to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots, I compare thee. And he went up to Gilad to see her flowing hair for he had written, 
Thy hair is like a flock of goats flowing down Mount Gilad. And he went up to the Tower of David, for it says, like the Tower of the David is thy neck. And he got as far as Lebanon and found no peace, for it says, thy nose is like the Tower of Lebanon that looks out toward Damascus, which we just read today. And he wept by the waterfalls of En Gedi, for he had written, many waters cannot extinguish this love. And he went for the do- looking for the doves in Beit Guvrin and got all the way to Venice. I know that's curious. Why is Venice here? I asked some Israeli people. I got various answers. For he had written, my dove is in the clefts of the rock. And he dashed off to the desert, for it says, who is that rising from the desert like pillars of oak? And the Bedouin thought he was one of the crazy prophets. And he thought, down, and he thought he was King Solomon. And he is still wandering, a fugitive and a vagabond, with the mark of love on his forehead, which is an allusion to the mark of who has a mark on their forehead. Cain wanders and everyone knows who he is. And this is the lover of Jerusalem. He has the mark of love on his forehead. And sometimes he happens upon the loves of other couples in other times. He even got as far as our home with its broken roof on the border between Jerusalem and Jerusalem, typo. And we never saw him because we were in each other's arms. He is still wandering, shouting, you are beautiful, my bride, as if from within a deep sack of oblivion. And whoever wrote, love is as fierce as death. He understood his own simile only at the end, understood and loved and died. So, you know, if this were a poetry class, we would discuss it, but it's not. And do I understand it or not? You know, you can mull it over and read it with your loved ones and I leave it to your interpretation. Okay, three and four. We're gonna three see two very contemporary people. Arthur Waskow, um, who is um, 80 plus, lives in Washington, D.C., great, wonderful Jewish progressive. And he writes in an essay called Eden for Grownups. And he links this story as Henry did, as Henry spotted the Teshukah, Shira Shirim with the story of Gan Eden. From one standpoint, the story of Eden seems to embody and command the dominion of men over women, as well as rigid role, rigid roles in life for men and women. Referring to the Midrash based on Genesis chapter one, the original human was androgynous. The original human was somehow both male and female. Whoever wrote the words of Genesis and rabbinic commentary, that's the commentary on Genesis one that says that the original human was androgynous, androgynous, had a male front and a female back, right? Male and female, God created them. And then Hashem cleaved them down the middle and Selah doesn't mean rib, but means side. That's the Midrash, right? So original creation was egalitarian. And then it becomes in chapter through two and three, less egalitarian. That's what he's talking about. Whoever wrote the words of Genesis and rabbinic commentary can tell, could tell from looking at the world that men and women each had both masculine and feminine aspects. But a radical change happens in the garden, an event that triggers what we know as ordinary history. First the woman and then the man eat in some troublesome, perhaps growthful, and also disobedient way. In this moment and even more thereafter, the roles of man and woman become sharply differentiated, right? That's God's curse to Adam and Eve. Uh, They are warned that outside the garden in their more grown-up life, domination and conflict will take command. Men will have to struggle to win food from the earth. The earth will rebel against this control. 
men will rule over women. So he talks about basically the original garden, chapter one, there is this innocence, naivete, okay? They disobey. The punishment for the disobedience is this is now a world of conflict and domination. That's not how it was supposed to be in chapter one. Chapter two and three is the story of the world we live in, which is the world of conflict and domination. Then he says, but contemporary people strive to embody an ethos that is more egalitarian and less hierarchical than the view of Genesis chapter two. He's talking about the new world that we all want to create. That reality is meant to be overcome through historical transformation. Does the Bible give us a vision of this higher, fully mature garden? Yes, in the Song of Songs, one of the greatest love poems in all human literature. It is erotic, playful, passionate, funny, tipsy with love for the spring, the flowers, the smells, the legs and breasts and foreheads of each lover's sweet beloved. Each is naked and unashamed, celebrating the body of the other. Um, Waskow contrasts the nakedness in the garden. Originally, they were naked and innocent. They didn't know what nakedness meant. The lovers in Shira Shirim know exactly what nakedness means, that it is sexual. It's not childlike nakedness, but they're not ashamed. They're like, you know, lovers who walk around naked in front of each other, right? They know that you don't walk around naked. Adam and Eve didn't know that you don't walk around naked in the world. They didn't know any better, okay, until they fall from innocence, right? These lovers know exactly what nakedness is about, but they're not ashamed with each other. The song offers us an Eden, but not the infantile, unconscious Eden of Genesis 2. It is an Eden for fully matured grown-ups. God's name never appears in the song, as if the parental God of Eden is indeed gone, as would surely be the case if the parents' children had fully grown up, meaning when the young man and young woman are running around together looking at each other's bodies, parent is not around. That's why God is absent from Shira Shirim. Sorry, that's why God is not mentioned explicitly in me, because you'll see God is not absent. The song could become for our own generations an important lesson for sexual ethics and practice in a new ethos in which pleasure and joy were simultaneously earthly and spiritual, an ethos in which we saw the absence of God's name in the song as an invitation to sense God as present throughout the song, not in one of its particular characters, but in every breath of the songs. So in some sense, Waskow is talking about Shir Hashirim is, if I, if I may use a Kabbalistic term, is a sort of tikkun for the story of the Garden of Eden. They're running around in the garden. They're naked. They're not ashamed. Again, they're egalitarian. Okay, there is no domination. God, and he is saying, God is explicitly in the garden, the parent, the heavy-handed parent. God is present in Shir Hashirim, not explicitly, but implicitly throughout. I actually think we could easily have a like one-hour discussion just about that. And I'm sorry that I'm racing through these things. I, I, I think this is just a phenomenal interpretation. Uh, pause, just to take a breath. Eliyahu Assis, who is an Israeli Orthodox thinker who wrote a book about Shir Hashirim. And he talks about this ending a lot, okay? That the ending is about not about fulfillment. 
Chapter eight describes the transition from a moment of deep intimacy to an expression of longing that contains the books. Did I mean, did I mean that the book contains? I don't know. I translated this myself. Sorry, jotting down notes of what I need to change. The strongest, uh, uh, sorry, that contained the book's strongest expression of love and longing. That's the typo, sorry. But it should be book apostrophe S. In a burning love song, the one, that's the one we just read in chapter eight, Love is as Strong as Death. In a burning love song, the woman expresses her burning love for her beloved and expresses her desire for an eternal bond and to be engraved in the man's deepest self. Here we arrive at the book's main innovation. Here the woman expresses her awareness of the essence of love. And here we discover the great surprise that the love described here is the love of longing and need, but not that of satisfaction and pleasure. Love, says the woman, is the infinite desire for connection. There is a dialectic between the sense of need and the sense of fulfillment. On the one hand, the woman is experiencing a feeling of lack, a feeling of longing for her lover, a feeling that knows no satisfaction. That's a typo, N-O, that knows no satisfaction. Because the capacity for connection is infinite, and thus the desire is infinite. But on the other hand, love is not only pain, and the lover's feeling of a need lack that can't be fully fulfilled is balanced dialectically with an amazing sense of wholeness, of belonging, and of calm. This is the way of lovers. The poem, the poem likening love to fire and death, which depicts the sense of unrest and impossibility to attain full satisfaction, is what the woman expresses to her lover. While the two poems expressing wholeness and a sense of fulfillment is not directed to him... I really have to rewrite this, are not directed to him, but to her brothers and to Solomon. That's the poem to the brothers, right? Hey, I am ready. And to Solomon, hey, you keep your vineyard. Perhaps one senses here, misspelled, the multiple layers inside a person's love. The lovers have a sense of fulfillment and satisfaction at a deep level, but at a deeper level, a level, a level known only to the lovers themselves, there is never any rest. In such a love, there is no routine. There must always be renewal because the lovers always sense a deeper new level. Every move toward deeper connection is not a repeat of the past because the experience is new every time. There is always new shyness, new hesitations, and every connection is a new path that the lovers have never trod before. This explains the book's end. The book cannot conclude with the end of the story because true love is infinite. That's why the man invites the woman to connect and the woman refuses and pushes him to wait with another expectation for the future, right? He says, let me hear your voice. And she says, run away, right? The book must end with expectation and longing for it is impossible to know the end of a story that has no end. Now the reader realizes that the lovers will continue on their unending journey. I love you with an infinite love. This is the way of lovers. When they discover the secret of love, they experience a sense of wholeness. But alongside this, they always long for a total love that knows no satisfaction. Sorry for all the typos I worked on. I was rushed yesterday afternoon, only proofread once. I should have proofread three times. So whether Shirashirim is a story about human lovers, by the way, he's, he's, religious guy, Assis, he's Orthodox. So he knows that the traditional interpretation is about God and Israel, right? So it works both ways. So whether it's a story about human lovers, 
and or whether it's a story about God and Israel or the individual soul longing for God, he says, Assis, that the point of the story and the trajectory is that there is never really fulfillment or there's a sense of fulfillment that the individual might express to the outside world. I'm in love. I have my religious path. We're the Jews. We're totally happy, right? Internally, the person is on fire and there is a fundamental always longing for more, always longing for deeper. Again, whether it's in a relationship between two adult humans or whether it's B'nai Israel and God or whether it's the individual longing for God, there are, once you're inside that love, you know there are always deeper levels. There's always potential for renewal. There's always potential for more. And he says that's why the story, the, the, the trajectory, the plot is structured the way it is. And the book does not end with let us lie down now together in the fields. At the end, the couple isn't actually together. They're actually separate, which embodies their eternal longing for each other rather than a sense. It's, it's the love of wanting rather than the love of having. For those who know Hebrew, by the way, the word he uses always for longing is erga, ayin, resh, gimel, hey, which um, is also in um, lecha dodi, right, on Friday nights. Uh, our God? No, maybe it's one of the other ones. Uh, maybe it's one of the Shabbats we wrote, right? It means it's a combination of, it's sort of passionate longing. It's like less than lust, but more than longing. It's the drive, the intense emotional drive to be with someone and to try to merge with someone, even though you know you can't fully merge with them. So whether we're talking about humans or whether we're talking about humans and God, whether we're talking about B'nai Yisrael and the Kadosh Baruch Hu, uh, I think that's a good way to end up, that we're left with a longing that desires to merge, but can never fully 100% merge. And um, I guess this is why Shira Shirim, besides the superficial connection to spring and Pesach is the spring holiday and spring is springtime is when a young man and young woman's thoughts of fancy turn to love um on a deeper level uh pesach is the time when we get to got together in relationship with the kadosh baruch Hu, with god as a nation um and so uh, i think these musings on shira shirim um have a lot to uh contemplate about what the book might suggest to us about our relationship with God. So thanks for coming. Everyone have a Zisa and a Kosher of Pesach. However it is they say it, my, my Yiddish is not perfect. Chag Sameach, Kosher. And uh, uh, Rabbi Schatz, as always, please, I'm sorry we didn't have time for discussion. I apologize. Rabbi Schatz, please send me the chat. Uh, again, my email address is abrahamhavivi at gmail.com. So if anyone has any specific questions or comments you would like me to respond to, feel free to send them. Um, Paula, and Paula Perlman. And study. Say Omad. Go out and study. So what I've <laughs> given you is just, just 
<laughs> a little bit that I found. There's so much more to learn about Shira Shirin. Thank Paula you, Rabbi Shah. Just said, yes. You're so welcome. Paula Perlman just said exactly the same thing I was going to say, that I think we are all going to read Shira Shirin so differently now that we've taken this class. Um, and there's almost like an excitement around reading it now that there's there's real knowledge behind it as opposed to just hearing it sung, though beautiful to hear. Um, there is real knowledge and, and real questions behind it. So thank you for adding to our uh, our ability to read it with actual meaning and intention. My pleasure. My pleasure. My pleasure and honor. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.